ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Jack Crop for Sharing Recovery. Jack Crop, and welcome to Sharing Recovery Radio. The purpose of this show is just to spread the message that there is hope and that people can recover. To that end, we'd like to have a guest every week that tells us something about what went on in their lives and where they're at today. And today we've got a very special guest. Uh, John Brogan is a, is a recovering addict, but he's also on the forefront of battling the opioid addiction epidemic that we face in this country. He's based in New Jersey, but New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Ohio, Wyoming, wherever you are, there's an opiate epidemic today. John, I'd like to welcome you to Sharing Recovery Radio. Hi, Jack. How are you? It's an honor to be here. Thanks, John. I really appreciate this. So, as I said, John, we like to start this show by talking a little bit about your story. And so, and, and then we we really want to focus on the recovery aspect of our lives. You know, God willing, in September, I'll be sober 20 years. And I'd like to talk about that mostly, but I, we need to set a foundation. So, what was life like for you, John? Um, I, I mean, my, my story is not unique uh, to, you know, it's... Uh, I, I grew up parents divorced when I was young, biological parents divorced. I grew up with my mother um, and stepfather and sisters. And, um, you know, it was, uh, grew up at the Jersey Shore. And, uh, you know, just more answers, more questions than answers. Uh, I was I a was, uh, skinny, freckle-faced kid that felt like you didn't fit in. And, um, you know, as, uh, as I grew up and, uh, you know, got through my teenage years, I... Uh, you know, it just it, it turned into um, something where I, I, I ran around probably a little bit as a normal teenager, but I just uh, very ADD felt like I didn't fit in. And um, really, that wasn't the case at all. I, it was just normal teenager stuff. Um, however, uh, going into my um, junior year uh, of school, I had uh, had a little drink of alcohol for the first time and uh, it, it, it worked. Um, it definitely uh, was the answer to what I had been looking for. All of a sudden, I, I seemed to fit in. All of a sudden, I, uh, you know, I, I seemed to have confidence with girls. And, uh, you know, again, not unique. And uh, that's why I started using it at that point. You know, it's funny how many people say that they didn't feel like they fit in. And then a drink of alcohol or, or smoke some pot. And all of a sudden, everything was okay. Everything was calm. And everything... What? Everything then all of a sudden felt right, felt right in the world. Well, that was that, that's just it uh, with alcohol and drugs for uh, alcoholism and, and drug addicts, drug addiction. Uh, the, the treatment works. Taking a substance um, of any kind treat what's wrong with the what's wrong with the internal condition. If I was a normal person, I'd you know gotten sick, puke. Thought it was terrible, uh, never picked it up again. But um, that's not the way my brain uh, is designed, and the way that my brain is connected to my spirit, uh, it affects it differently than the normal person. And uh, off to the races I went. Yeah, most people listening, John, that I call in the lay community that aren't involved in recovery, don't understand that the drugs or the alcohol aren't the problem. Correct. The problem is what is wrong inside of us. Each and every one of us that's an, an addict, there's something missing on the inside. There's some disconnect between how we think and how we feel. And alcohol or drugs anesthetizes that feeling temporarily. It's not alcohol and drugs can't fix it permanently. It, it's a temporary fix. 
Is that how you found yourself? Uh, absolutely. It was uh, um, it was a temporary fix that worked in the beginning. And, uh, you know, as I progressed through life, I went into the Marine Corps right out of school. And, you know, then I came home from the Marine Corps um, trying to always change situations and arrange places um, to, to fit what I was trying to do. The windows of temporary fix got smaller and smaller and smaller. Uh, and then the consequences start to build up more and more and more. Um, and uh, and that we call is the progression of uh, addiction. You know, I've heard you mention the Marine Corps before. And uh, it, I have that in common with you. Not that I was in the Marines, but when I was 21 years old or 22 years old, a friend of mine who uh, graduated from college, was going on to law school. I thought I was going to take that same path. It didn't work out. He came to me one day and said, I'm worried about you. He said, the only thing that's going to help you is joining the Marines, because his brother was a, an officer in the Marines. And, of course, I told him, you know, to go fly a kite. That wasn't for me. And, you know, it was 23 or 24 years later when I finally realized he was right, that I needed structure and I needed help. So what did you do, John? How, how bad did it get? Structure works, in, in reference to your point about the Marine Corps, structure works uh, for the young, immature kid um, that needs just that structure or someone that just might be ADHD, for example. However, when you have uh, a spiritual malady and an internal condition, um, you, you need more than structure. You need that whole psychic change. And um, so I was able to, like, like most alcoholics at that point and during my years in the Marine Corps, it was really, truly alcoholism because um, I was was not, I, I, I wasn't touching any drugs at that point. Um, you know, it was work hard, play hard. Um, uh, you know, it was a lot of training, first 18 months of the Marine Corps. And, um, you know, you had a badge of honor to go out and drink. And, um, you know, whatever came at the end of a night or through the end of a night of drinking came. And um, a lot of shameful behaviors, uh, a lot of fighting, uh, a, a lot of nonsense that uh, could have been avoided. Um, however, it's, uh, it's part of the journey. And um, the structure, I'll tell you today, um, that I learned in the Marine Corps, the discipline that I learned in the Marine Corps, I always credit the Marine Corps to when I went into the Salvation Army and um, when I started to get sober because that stuff is muscle memory and comes back once the psychic change started to take effect and my addiction uh, was lifted. I was able to dive into the structure kind of like riding an old bike, the structure of the 12 steps, the structure of getting up early every morning, the structure of being a productive member of, of society again started to kick in over the period of sobriety years. That John, makes sense. John, when did the drug start for you? Uh, when I got out of the Marine Corps, um, when I came home from the Marine Corps, I mean, the, the last year I was in the Marine Corps, all I wanted to do was smoke pot. Um, I was uh, 24 years old. Um, all of my friends, all they wanted to do, oh, you know, uh, growing up at the Jersey Shore, that's what a lot of my friends did. Um, and I felt like I was missing out on something. Um, at that point, though, the progression of alcoholism, and again, 
alcoholism not defined as some, someone that's you know under a bridge with a brown bag. Um, alcoholism defined as defined as someone with a, a internal condition that treats it with pouring alcohol over it, and um, that's where I was at. And uh, you know, adding another substance to that with marijuana at the at that point um, really was I was looking forward to it. I welcomed it, and uh, it just progressed into other things. All right, now, John, if I'm not if I'm not mistaken, at one point it got real bad for you, and you overdosed, right? Oh well, so I mean, I came home. I, you know, it it, it was always unmanageable. Looking back on it, I got married. I had three daughters, um, and uh, we ended up separating at a certain point after the years of uh, addiction and progression. And um, while I was out and about at the and on the last really two years of my run, I had progressed up the scale from you know to ecstasy, cocaine, um, you know. Uh, two pills, Roxaset, uh, 30 milligram. They call them blues in different parts of the country. They're 30 milligrams of oxycodone and sniffing those. And then that progressed once I couldn't get those anymore, just like everyone else progressed going over uh, up into North Philly and uh, getting bags of heroin and intravenously taking them eventually. All right, John, we're going to take a quick break to thank, uh, to do some advertising. We'll be right back to you because the next part of the story is where I really, I'm, I'm so impressed. So we'll be right back to you, John. I'm Jack, and we're back. So, John, things got real bad for you, right? before i thought we were going to get to talk about politics and putin and helsinki no uh, not on this show buddy <laughs> i don't i don't know anything about kidding. we're gonna we're gonna talk about governor christie though because i like that guy but i'm just kidding i just I <laughs> like to have fun and sobriety yeah i don't know anything uh, about politics john um, but john yeah so, go ahead did you, you you got to the point where you actually had to be brought back after an overdose with narcan right so, yeah, so back in 2009 and 2010, when this happened for me, um, I was, I'm, I'm your typical garbage head, you know, alcoholic, drug addict. I would go out and drink, um, you know, at, at the Jersey Shore in the spring and summertime, you know, to, you know, to excess. And um, I would wake up hungover, maybe with an hour of sleep, take a handful of Xanax and drive out to the uh, spots in North Philly and get cocaine and heroin and intravenously take it. And the combination of that substances, because when you're in active addiction, you think, oh, because I'm not buzzed anymore, it's not in my system. Um, that was what was continuously, oh, I overdosed four times um, in a short time frame. Um, and, and that was, there was fentanyl really was, I mean, it could have been mixed in at some point, but compared to what we do now with, both prosecutors' offices in the state of New Jersey and Ocean Monmouth County. I mean, I don't, I don't, I would be dead. I think if fentanyl was out then the way that I used. Yeah, fentanyl is killing a lot of people real fast, and, and, instantly. And we see that, instantly. you know. And, and I don't know if you noticed on uh, Facebook, but I, I say all the time, one pill can kill, because that, that's where we're at today. Just one little bit of fentanyl, and you're a dead person. Well, in, in 2000, in Ocean of Monmouth County, in, in 2015, 
uh, we had fentanyl in 35% of our dead bodies. In 2016, we had 45% fentanyl in our dead bodies. In 2017, we had um, 65%, and in 2018, we're tracking 85% fentanyl in our dead bodies. Totally amazing. Uh, that, that's just astonishing to even us who work in this field. That is, now, this is, that is true. John, did you go to a treatment program? Uh, I, uh, I, I mean, I guess that's maybe why I'm in the space. I mean, now I did, I did not have health insurance, uh, to be able to go to the VA in Bedminster was like, uh, trying to get to California for me, uh, from Tom's river. So, um, no, I mean, I had been to Maryville and some state funded places, um, new hope, but, uh, nothing, um, nothing like what's out there today. And, uh, uh, frankly, I don't, I don't think it would have worked anyway. I mean, I, I needed what I needed, um, you, you know, which was a, a heavy dose long term of uh, God, the 12 steps and uh, a lot of service work. All right. How did you get clean? Um, so I uh, I, try, I turned myself in after I, I, I had an attempted suicide in November of 2010. And um, I, uh, I was really shook by the failed attempt came home to my mother's house uh like any good addict and um i had been on probation which i hadn't shown up for uh, for a long period of time i was bartending in a different part of the state and um you know i uh had a i had a week in essence um that i detoxed in my mom's house uh before going into court and turning myself into the judge um, and he locked me up for right under 60 days, I think I remember at the time. Um, and then right before Christmas, let me out. And I got into the Salvation Army in Trenton, New Jersey. So you detoxed in jail, just cold turkey? I, what's funny about the end, and again, God's grace always carrying you. Um, I, I, that last two weeks of intravenously taking drugs, I had shot more cocaine because I was bartending at the time. And maybe a little bit of dope here and there. So I, I didn't necessarily have the physical detox habit, but I'll tell you, I had never detoxed from cocaine uh, like that before where the, you know, the physical nausea and diarrhea wasn't there, but I was up for a week in a bedroom uh, in my mom's house watching Dog the Bounty Hunter without being able to eat, which was probably worse than the <laughs> yeah, other that, detox. John, that was much worse than going through <laughs> detox, having to watch Dog the Bounty Hunter for a I, week. I mean, going for walks in the neighborhood at 3 in the morning, but, you know, just, I mean, just brutal, brutal, brutal. Well, that, and in my case, John, I walked into a recovery program off the street. I didn't go to a treatment center. Right. In the end, I was drinking three quarts of vodka a day. And, and I walked into a meeting on a Friday afternoon, and by the grace of God, I have not had a drink since. Now, that's not typical. I mean, that, that's, not, that's not the average person in recovery today. You know, relapse. Yeah, today is a totally different, Jack. This is a totally different exactly. time frame. Uh, it's the same solution we found in our outcomes. I'm huge in what we do now with tracking and outcomes and data. But the secret with what we've done where, for example, last year in Ocean County, we actually experienced a 25% decrease because of all these progress. Pro programs that we've implemented uh, through law enforcement and various other agencies, it's getting the kids through the moment of crisis to these 12-step programs, which is where you're seeing the success. Now, I didn't say MAT. I'm against MAT. All I'm saying is that 
um, MAT is more of a, uh, it needs to be supported with clinical and, and recovery support, not just giving the drugs. So I don't want to, I don't want to get any of your listeners off on a tangent on that one. Well, and, and you know what we did in last season, we did have one show about MAT, medically assisted treatment or medical assisted treatment. And I'm not in favor of it either. I'm an absence based person, John. But well, here's the here's the thing, Jack, with MAT, and it took me a long time, like the last year, really, to get to this. I had someone uh, in in the political space that I really respect. There really is no best practices for MAT. At least I'm only gonna speak for New Jersey. In New Jersey, you had a lot of gynecologists and podiatrists that went and, and got six hours of school, and now they hand out Suboxone like the local drug dealer. It, the point of it is is to support it so for to someone that has failed over and over again. Again, um, multiple times so that they don't die to titrate them off but it's such a money maker they just drive them up without any clinical and recovery support services so until they can you can combine the two it's um you know it, it's it's a struggle right we're right on the same page there if we could save somebody's life with medically assisted treatment let's do it but where is the structure in that program to walk them off that to a program of abstinence? Because it's, you're 100% right, and it's because it's, it's, it's not designed that way. It's, it's the, the only way you can make money doing that as a business is driving them up. There's no profit in, in a business that does MAT if they're on it for 10 days or less, and you get them with a little big book thumper, and they're clean and sober. Right. There, there's, no, there's no profit in that. So There's, there's no money... Right. There's no money right. chasing the patients out the door. Uh, right. And then, and then it becomes a political issue where certain parties say that's the only way and evidence-based practice. And I argue that all the time and have created a lot of enemies when I was really early on in my career because I, 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 was, I was certainly not polished. And I didn't know how to articulate that. I knew exactly what you and I were talking about, that it didn't work. I mean, I had tried to I, intravenously take Suboxone at one point. <laughs> I knew that, but I also knew that thousands of kids out there cannot get off of it unless they uh, go back to shooting heroin for a period of time. That I knew, but, but that's not what case studies and evidence-based practices and people that are funding those case studies um, are, are saying. They, they want to shift the case study to show that, you know, MAT is the only game out there. Well, and, and yeah, you and I are on the same page. That's not the answer. I also know this, John, that when I came to recovery, I was told, sit down and shut up. Nobody, you don't have anything anybody here wants to hear. And that's okay. That was 1998. It was alcohol, and it worked for me. That doesn't right. work today. You, no. you, you can't take uh, no. a 25-year-old opiate addict and tell them, sit down and shut up, and we'll get back to you in a year. Because I was told, don't talk for a year. So it, it, Again, that goes to, Jack, that goes to the generational. I yeah. mean, I struggle with getting the iPad out of my daughter's hands today. Right. Uh, my wife and I are always, you know, kind of chuckling about it. I didn't even have an iPad. I didn't have, uh, you know, I had maybe 15 minutes on a phone on the wall when I was in good behavior. Um, it's a different generation. That fear factor, right, wrong, or different, or wherever you fall on the side of the argument, you know, I loved my grandparents' generation. It sucked as a kid because you were constantly being corrected and disciplined as a result. But um, this generation of kids, there is no fear factor. Um, which lends, it's good in some ways, and, it, and it's really bad in other ways. So um, that 
is definitely a major factor uh, in in all of this. When you you have to look at everything, you can't just look at one or the other. You know what I mean? A absolutely. And and to, I remember being in a bar one night. And, and there was a guy there, and he said to me, it looks like you're having a bad day. He said, it doesn't look like the alcohol is helping you. And I'm not quoting verbatim, obviously, but he said, why don't you try some heroin? And I looked at him like he was crazy because that was so foreign to me. Now, you know, we're talking about 1998 again. But today, kids say to each other, try this heroin or try this, or, or kids are going in their parents' medicine cabinet and just taking one Oxycontin. That's pretty much the norm right across all socioeconomic status today, right, John? That is correct. You're 100% right on that. That that the Oxycontin doctors are just as bad as the guy on the street selling selling drugs. So there's a little bit more to it too when you when you when you get caught up to it and you really start drilling down on the data that's that's there today. I mean, look at the iPad. Look at the way. And I'm only going to speak for my children. Um, you know, my kids are on the iPads all the time. They're they're unbelievably brilliant and smart um, because of what they are able to the way their brains are able to develop much faster than what we were but what comes with that is the way that they're almost hooked on these things it's create it's it's setting off the endorphins in the brain and if for some um you know uh, god awful reason they do find that the way to that drug and they take it it's going to hit that same um sensory pattern in the brain and then off to the races exactly and so where do we go from here, John? And that's what I want to talk about next. I'd like you to tell me about what re what's a recovery coach, John? Oh, you're going to have to. We could spend days and hours. I, you well, know, it hasn't opinion hasn't been defined yet how it started in new jersey was uh there there's been a lot of recovery coaches out there there's recovery specialists there's interventionists you know um I, I didn't even know what it was uh in the beginning i had just i was an intern working in and out of the jails and the court systems trying to get my clinical hours when this whole thing with governor christie started and um you know i i just i was getting addicts out of jail um when their court dates were up and trying to get them into long-term sober living homes uh, structured 12-step sober living homes because it was all I knew. Um, and, and, and it was more successful than having the guys rotated back in and out of jail, in and out of the hospital systems. So um, the recovery coach is a community-based individual. That's one type, the CCAR model out of Connecticut. And in New Jersey, when we launched the o opioid overdose recovery program with Governor Christie, um, it, it wasn't, you know, you have to be an interventionist at that point and not just an interventionist like you see on TV where they're going out and they're, you know, they're getting all the family together. These kids don't have families. This is a kid that just died. You're in the emergency room and you have to understand that when that person walks out of the emergency room and, and tells you to go after yourself and everyone else along the way, uh, they're probably going to be dead. So you absolutely have to leverage them and do everything you can um, to protect them from themselves. Um, so so that was that's one style of a recovery specialist. Right, stop, recovery stop right there for one but, second, John, because I, we have to take a break. But this is what I want to talk about. I want to talk about what treatment in my mind and I think in your mind should be. And it starts right here. I'll be right back to you, John. No problem. So I just want to backtrack a little bit here because you said something just before the break that I want to emphasize. People think 
about intervention and they think you're in some nice suburban home with mommy and daddy all wearing their J. Crew sweaters and we're going to sit around with each other and read letters. And, and today, intervention is in the streets, it's in prisons, it's anywhere there's a kid on a corner with a bag and a needle, right? It, I mean, it's almost, I, I don't want to say laughable, um, you know, I want to be respectful of all the different spaces in the industry, but because of the, and I get, I run a business, I get you have to be profitable and, and you know, you have to keep the lights on, but because of the way that the treatment industry handled this situation, you know, 10, 15 years ago, there is no more interventions right. in, in, in the A&E channel. And, you know, these kids are overdosing and dying. If they're lucky, they wake up um, or they're in the county jail systems. So um, that's where true interventions are. If you walk into a house where someone's kind of like, all right, mommy and daddy are right. Listen, that's not the addicts and alcoholics we're dealing with today in Ocean County and Monmouth County in New Jersey, I'll tell you that. They're not the people I'm seeing here in northeastern Pennsylvania. Now, that's correct, but, John, it, but it's marketed differently. How many people are you finding, and you? And I, I must say, John runs <laughs> Lifeline Recovery Support Services. He does this seven days a week, 24 hours a day. He's helping people in the streets. How many of them have insurance today, John? <laughs> no, that's Come on, uh, I, I'm, I'm not, not trying to make you laugh. Come on. Uh, I, it's... Uh, uh, it, I would say uh, it's about 97% indigent, 95% indigent. Um, it depends. We have it broken down now uh, after doing this for years. We have programs that run in the jails. We have programs that run throughout the police stations. But these kids are, if, if you're, you know, you can get kids in the 18 to 26-year-old bracket if you, if you, um, you know, are, are strategizing for that. But they are a much tougher population. Hence the problem with the industry as a whole because that's where everyone that is private treatment is gearing towards and then after they're 26 they're given a quote-unquote mental health diagnosis because there's a little bit of county funding for that and which follows you around like it's a felony conviction and you're just rotated in a system of IOPs that deliver mental health and MAT services until you uh, fatally overdose um, or perish as a result of your disease. So uh, we've been able to tweak the system and have some success, but it's not working within the system, I can tell you that. Right, and let me clarify for those listening. Uh, at, at age 20, up until age 26, you can remain on your parents' insurance. That is correct. If your parents have a job, if your parents have some kind of insurance, up till age 26, the, the, a, a child is covered. At age 26, the insurance has cut the child off. And in nine times out of ten, the kids we're seeing at 26 in one day no longer have insurance. We're that, seeing, that is correct. We're seeing a population of young people that don't work. They have no income. They're, they're living hand to mouth, whether it's from mom, dad, other things. And they're the kids that are coming to us, John and I and other people that do this, and what I like to call in the street. Those are the kids we're seeing that need help, and now we've got to find some way to help them. And we do everything we can. But what is, what is the answer? What do we do, John? 
Uh, so what we've been able to do uh, with Lifeline and then the branching out companies that we're doing, we're actually in the process of building two separate buildings right now where we're partnering with one of the major hospital systems to do like an urgent care triage. There's actually an, actually an excellent uh, article in the New York Times this morning uh, about a girl that had, has died, uh, but she was wishing that there was some sort of an urgent care triage center where, and it's got to be Medicaid reimbursable. Again, IMD exclusion was supposed to be lifted in July. It, uh, July 1, it was not. It's been pushed back to October. Um, the Medicaid rate should should be a little bit more more reasonable to reimburse. Um, IMD exclusion is that, you know, exclusion that wouldn't allow states pretty much in layman's terms to be reimbursed for Medicaid if you had over 16 beds in your facility, um, which came out in like 1965. So um, we are, uh, we started at Lifeline with just, we would if you had no insurance, we would scholarship you into a detox, um, and then you would come out if we could scholarship you into some good. And it was always the 12-step uh, facilities, one in Texas, any length retreat. Um, there's one in Pennsylvania, uh, BWR. Um, there's a lot of different facilities that we have found that would scholarship these individuals and give them a shot. And then we would tout their success uh, once we brought them back, because after treatment was done, treatment to me, in my definition, is a 30 to 45 day, maybe 60 day detox. Um, not in the real work begins when they come back to a lifeline and they can start digging in where they're looking at getting into a structured sober living, getting a job. Um, and during that whole process, um, going through the steps, uh, finding out what those internal things were. You know, why was I, why was I always looking at myself as a victim when I really wasn't a victim? I was just going through life. Those are all the pieces. And then, and then realize that I can make it through this and not just make it through it like it's, you know, I'm drudging through life. I can actually enjoy it and, and be happy and be okay with who I am. That is where that psychic change that our literature talks about. Um, and then you get fired up about life. And, you know, like one of my uh, favorite authors always says, you know, you get so fired up you can't keep it in yourself. you got to go tell someone. So, um, you know, that that's what the recovery supports. And that's what, uh, frankly, all these treatment uh treatment companies and, and, and treatment centers, I, I, I do get a little fired up about this stuff because they've been making hundreds of millions of dollars for a long time. But, you know, it costs $15,000 to run a recovery center any month. Why, why wouldn't you go out and open that? Well, why wouldn't you go out and open one like that? Why do you give them a coin when they leave the treatment center and say, call us when you relapse? Yeah. Well, and this is the, and I, I go, Sunday mornings I go at 8 o'clock to a recovery meeting. I had this conversation just this morning with someone. Treatment centers, when I, that when I first learned about treatment centers, they were actually there to try and help people. Today, and I'm going to offend people, a lot of treatment centers are cash machines. They're not really in the recovery business. They're in how do we turn dollars. I'm going to say two things about that. If you're a businessman and you got into this business and you're just a smart person and figured it out, Okay, I'm not letting you off the hook, but okay. But the people that are in recovery that figured this billing insurance kind of thing out, shame on them. And usually when you look at them, their, their recovery is a little bit different. I mean, I don't. I remember going to a treatment center two years ago when I, you know, we were still learning the pieces of this. And I mean, they were in Northern Monmouth County, and they were making so much. I mean, they must have been getting 
Yeah, 15 to 20 uh, insurance policies a month from Northern Monmouth County and shipping them down to Florida. And I said to them, why don't you guys open a recovery center for all these kids coming back, and, and, you know, to, from when they leave your treatment center and it fell on deaf ears? Uh, absolutely. That, that's not about that because there's no money left. And, and people in the community think they have a, uh, an insurance card in their pocket and they're going to walk into any treatment center and get treatment for their family member themselves whatever it is that's not the case that's not it's not that easy but once an insurance once a treatment center gets their hands on you they've got an actuary that's figuring out how many dollars can we get out of this card and that's what bothers me right now so uh, it's uh, it, it's okay if you're running a good business and you're really trying to help people but if you're trying to be out in front and be on the front lines and help the epidemic i mean you, and there are a lot of good treatment centers out there but take some of that you know why don't you sell one of your maseratis and open a recovery center somewhere or you know what i mean why don't you sell one of those big houses you have and open there there's some really great treatment centers out there you know that are doing good work and trying to work with Within the system to make it grow, but it's just—it's I, 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 really, you know, it's egregious at best when you look at what's happened. There's also a couple of big hedge funds from Greenwich, Connecticut, that own treatment centers. I mean, how they, not, how they went I, from I that that to over here, I don't know. I I like to see treatment centers that are owned by people in recovery. I like those centers myself, but I can get I can get off on a tangent on that, so I won't do that. <laughs> now, here's the next thing that John that I think you and I are probably in agreement on. You go to a treatment center, you spend 28 days there if you're lucky, and then you come home. People think, oh, you, you're, you've recovered. You've gone through a treatment center. Recovery starts after you get detoxed and stabilized. Recovery has to be a way of life. Basically, no, not basically. It has to be a way of life forever then. Listen, if the drugs and the alcohol, they treat what's wrong with me. They treat what's wrong with my internal condition. And I and we as a society or as a treatment center remove that from someone, i.e. the uh, incarcerating them in county jail or state prison or putting them in a state run facility or putting them in a, in, a, in a facility where they're doing hot yoga and petting horses all day. That is not the proper treatment that replaces the drugs and the alcohol. So I'm designed as an alcoholic and drug addict to work my way back, no, whether intentionally or unintentionally, to that substance that treats what's wrong with me. So until I replace it with a structured, usually step process, haven't really seen too many other processes that work long term, as well as the 12 step process, um, I, you, that you're not going to get out of this. It's just the, the way, it's just my experience, but I feel as though we've been able to put some pretty solid data down and grow a pretty big team of individuals that have, uh, you know, had some success with this. And it's been going on since 1935, Jack, you know that. Right. John, how many times have families said to you, well, what, what are our chances of success? What is the success rate at this, at this program? Well, the success rate is not dead, first of all. I mean, I get that, asked that question all the time. How do you define success? Well, we got to start with not dead. Right. Um, so, you know, out of the 389 people in Ocean County alone that we helped last year, um, we're still tracking and with about a little over 200 people. 
Um, and that means I have recovery specialists 24-7 through a tracking and data collection process uh, that are on the phones with them. Those are the ones that are clean and sober, some that are in Ocean County, some that are in other states doing well, mostly Texas. Texas has, like, the str- in my opinion, the strongest um, recovery community that I've ever seen, uh, you know, through and through. Um, so... I uh, that that those numbers I can give you, and now we're in Monmouth County, where we saw 71 clients alone this week in the ocean. It just the program that launched this week alone, because we have something called bail reform in New Jersey, where if you are arrested on a simple summons, or if you get a hundred, if you're arrested with a hundred bags of heroin, or you're not going to county jail anymore, you're being released on a summons. So um, you know those kids are being released. So we have to get recovery specialists into the police stations to scoop them up there, which is changing the whole psyche of a police department because they're not designed that way. And then if they are taken to county jail, we put recovery specialists in booking. And that is a credit to Sheriff Golden and Prosecutor Grimiccioni in Monmouth County, where they are forward thinking and that the only way out of this epidemic is to actually try to uh, help these kids so that they don't, because then they go from there, they go from county jail to emergency room to dead. And we do have that aggregate data uh, to show, which is how we came up with this plan to try to reach in and help these kids. All right, we're going to take our last break, John, and then when we come back, we're going to talk about what you see happening in the near future and the long range of, of recovery. Thanks, John. Okay. All right, John, as we come back to to the last uh, seven or eight minutes, whatever we have left here, I'd like to talk uh, about where we're headed with recovery in this country. Because in my case, my youngest daughter went through a treatment program twice. And uh, after the second time, we sent her to a a long-term recovery house sober program in Maine where she spent eight months. And now she's two and a half years clean and is doing real well. But I firmly believe that, that the recovery process has to be much longer than 28 days. And, and people have to be afforded the opportunities to get into a structured program long term. Is that going to happen, John? Yeah, uh, yeah, before we get into that, Chuck, I just wanted to kind of recognize uh, one, one of, my, one of our, our family friends and all the people that have lost, uh, you know, family, uh, family members and loved ones um, that have perished due to this disease. I, my daughter's over swimming with family friends right now the Todding Minx family, and, um, you know, uh, people die every day, and they're forgotten about. The families don't forget, but they're forgotten about. And uh, I know, Jack, you're in the same boat as I am, where the reason that really drives us in doing this is that we honor those because it is a disease. And, um, you know, it's um, you don't really understand until you've been affected by it this is not a choice thing this is not a moral failing so uh, i just wanted to kind of take that couple quick seconds um and honor all your listeners out there that have lost one i'm glad you did john and and over the past year we've had on us two or three guests that were family members that lost loved ones you know like tony luke from uh, uh, from philadelphia good buddy of mine he he was on our show and and talked about his son and Tony runs hashtag brown and white trying to break the stigma of addiction in this country. And and that's the thing. There's there's a stigma attached to a loss of a loved one. We want to break that stigma. And we want to support the families that have lost 
children, parents, brothers, sisters, whatever it is, to addiction. Because and to lead to your point, moving this forward, where are we going with recovery and in the community? You, we have to continue to drive this thing and plug the gaps. Um, that's why I am so involved with politics up to the highest level and the highest office in our country, because that is where the change. You cannot kick the leaders of this country and expect them to invite you into the room, um, you know, and, uh, and, and ex effectuate change. I get criticized all the time because, you know, I do a lot of work with the president's office or with the governor's office. And regardless of the politics, these kids are dying every day. And until you can show them and sit down and articulate these, this is where the gaps are and this is where we're going, um, like you just said, long-term, long-term, long-term. It's, it, it's not even worth it. I, you know, I would scratch the whole system of 28 days, scratch all the funding, scratch all the prevention. It didn't work. I would start there and move it towards those long-term, like Plymouth houses or any length retreats up in Maine or down in Texas, where you're going. You know, you shouldn't be rewarded for, for, for doing something like using substances and stealing from your family. You know, there should be some sort of a, a penalty, but the penalty is learning how to relive your life um, in, in, a, in a spiritual, social, and a respectful manner so that you can have some purpose in your life and you can go out there and help someone. Most people don't understand that the kids that are going into treatment, they don't know how to write a check. They don't know how, in some cases, to brush their teeth. They certainly don't know how to find a job. They don't have life skills. So now we take them from the street, put them in a treatment center for 28 days, where they're basically catered to. Their meals are prepared, the beds and the, everything, the laundry's done. And then after 28 days, we say, okay, go on back out on the street. Well, now what do they do? They have no life skills. How do they find a job? How do they open a checking account? Most of them don't have anything to do. So what, how do we deal with that? Well, so, so what we've done is we've partnered with former Governor McGreevy in New Jersey. His program, Governor Christie, helped him launch a, a pilot program a couple years ago. Now it's a, it's a program that's been running very successfully. When we bring our kids home from treatment, or even if it's just detox, it's always a little bit harder if it's just out of detox, but they get to go to New Jersey Reentry Corporation um, where they get a checking account, they'll get a job, they get all those holistic needs, and then that's from 8 to 2 during the day, and then at night or in the late afternoon they come over to lifeline and they get the recovery aspect they run through the steps they work with a coach they work with a clinician um they'll get psychiatric evals that's another thing how can you give them a psych psychiatric diagnosis when you're coming off of shooting cocaine and heroin for six straight months you need a solid 30 60 days detox of all mind and mood altering substances right. before you can diagnose them Exactly. You can't take a kid who's all messed up on some kind of cocktail because their kids aren't doing just one thing. They're doing anything they get their hands on. So they've got some kind of cocktail running through their system and we're going to evaluate them. No, right. no, stop. We've got to take away the cocktail and get them detoxed and stabilized. And let's see where they are in 90 days or let's see where they are in six months. But they, they need help getting started. They need a leg up. They can't just do it themselves. 100%. You're 100% right, Jack. That, that, you know, when my daughter went to Maine, you know, like the first 30 days she was there, she was pretty much in a controlled environment. And then they sent her out as a volunteer to work at, for a couple of weeks there. The third month, they encouraged her to get a job, as they call them, get well jobs. You know, my yep. kid's got a, two college degrees and is, is a drug and alcohol counselor. But she ended up working in, in a get well yep. job just to get back up and running.
Jack, it's a it's, you know this. Uh, it's a pro it's 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 progress. You know, you, you I look back on my early years in recovery, and I was like, man, I was nuts. You make some really poor decisions, but you do it without drinking or using. I, I mean, and that goes for today. Even as I'm growing up here in, in my life, I just turned 40 last year. You know, I, I'm this last year for some reason I am valuing every second of my day where I went early in my career. It was like go 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 go. No, I've always loved my wife and kids more than anything in the world. World. But you start to value things more and more as you get older, and you start to really recognize, you know, the smell coming off of the tree, you know, when the wind's blowing through it, or the ocean and the sounds, and you know, getting home to your kids every day, even though they drive you nuts. Um, you start, you don't want to miss a moment anymore, and that's the same with recovery with these kids. You have to lead them by example. If if you're full of, you know what. These kids are going to sniff that out from a mile away, and they're not going to buy into what you're doing. That That's like the key there. That's why those uh, recovery houses you're referencing up in Maine and the ones down in Texas, they lead by example. If you don't lead by example, your outcomes are going to be exactly, are going to be nil. John, you said something interesting, because after I stopped drinking... I didn't change the way I was living. I just simply nope. stopped drinking. I made worse decisions without alcohol than I made with alcohol. I made decisions in recovery, so to speak, not drinking, that sent me to prison. I, I look back now and say I was more messed up without the alcohol than I was with the alcohol. I mean, with the alcohol, I was passing out every day. Now I, I, they take the alcohol away, and now i got to make decisions. I ran a landscaping company, and we weren't a small landscaping company. We worked all over the East. And I made decisions that sent me to prison because wow. I didn't know where to turn. I didn't, I didn't surrender to a program of recovery. I hadn't surrendered to a higher power. Now I'm running on my own free will, but I, I, I have no help. I had no guidance because I didn't understand. Today, you know, I'm, I am, I, I quote Dr. Bob every day. You know, we've got to trust God. We've got a clean house. And then we have to help others. And, and that is recovery in the Reader's Digest version for me. And everybody's recovery is their own and how they do their recovery. I never criticize how anybody does their recovery program. If it's working for you, good. But that's what works for me is trusting God and talking about myself to someone, telling somebody what's going on every day, and then helping others. And helping others has become the focus of my life. And I'm 61 years old, and for the first 55 years, it was all about me. Even 15, 16 years into recovery, I didn't realize that, that life's not about me. It's not about Jack Crop. You know, a, de a dear friend of mine asked me about a week ago, how do you spell Jack? I thought she was joking. So, John, thank you for being on this show. This has been one of the most informative shows we've ever had, and I really appreciate it. And God bless you, and please keep doing what you're doing, John. Jack, you said one of my favorite lines out of Dr. Bob at the end there. Thank you. Thanks, buddy. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.